Hi, I'm Blaze Brosnan, and I'm your host for this episode of MIR Meets. Today, we'll be speaking to Nate Hawkman. Nate Hawkman is a, is a National Review writer and a rising star on the new right. Uh, he's published in the New York Times just about a week or two ago at the age of 23. I'm a famous sort of an articulator of this new kind of more nationalist and populist uh, you know, variant of conservatism called the new right, but mainly to liberals. He exp- he's done a lot of explaining on liberal podcasts and publications of this kind of approach. And that's kind of where I first heard of him and I think where a lot of people first heard of him. So let's get started. So would you mind explaining to our audience what the new right is and how it differs from older variations on American conservatism? Yeah. Uh, hey, Blaze. Thanks for having me. I think um, the... The new right is sort of an uncreative term because various generations of conservatives have described themselves as a new right. So uh, William F. Buckley, who's sort of regarded as the godfather of American conservatism, they described themselves as the new right because there was this old right in the first half of the 20th century that was sort of exemplified by people like Taft. And then during the religious right in the sort of 1970s and 1980s, there was another new right. So it's not the most helpful term, but it's this kind of strain of of conservatism, which is particularly popular amongst young conservative intellectuals, um, which is less interested, I think, in the kind of Paul Ryan era of free market orthodoxy in terms of libertarian economics, and is less interested in kind of like the Bush era neoconservatism nation building. So it is bound together by a kind of nationalist affect where it's interested in you know, it believes in a common good. It's interested in fighting the culture war more aggressively than a previous generation of Republicans were. Um, and it's not really interested in kind of universalist claims to nation building or mass immigration, et cetera. So the, the kind of nationalist politics that I think a lot of new right folks are interested in have a long pedigree on the right. There were various nationalists and populists in the conservative movement going back to basically the, the popularization of the word conservative. So none of this is particularly new. It's more that it is resurgent right now, particularly with the rise of someone like Donald Trump, who exemplified some of these impulses um, and has become more popular in in Republican and conservative circles, particularly in my generation. But it's difficult to kind of describe the phenomenon because it's so varied, right? I mean, there are people on the new right who are described as Catholic integralists, which I am not, which are people who basically reject the founding as too liberal and want sort of a Catholic monarchist state that you know, answers to the Pope. And that's exemplified by people like Adrian Vermeule. Uh, and then there are people like me who I, I think the kind of conservatism I'm interested in is is still squarely within the mainstream conservative tradition. It's just been neglected in recent decades and is making a comeback. So how does the modern new right differ and how is that similar to the paleoconservative movement? You know, and paleoconservatism is a very, very old tradition in American right-wing politics, probably even going back, even someone like H.L. Mencken, Although he wasn't particularly religious, you could say he was a predecessor in a certain sense. But really, you know, guys like uh, Pat Buchanan, Sam Francis, you know, those, and you mentioned Sam Francis in your article as sort of a uh, antecedent. Um, and paleoconservatism is, uh, in large part, you know, a lot of similar stuff: rejecting nation building, um, rejecting um, broad governmental overreach, you know, through programs such as the Great Society and, and such. And uh, moving towards a more kind of common good oriented politics. Um, so how how do you how do you how are you similar and how are you differ how do you differ from the paleoconservative tradition? 
So yeah, paleoconservatism as a word is actually pretty new. It really only emerged in the sort of 1970s as a reaction to neoconservatism. But I think the early paleoconservatives saw themselves as being more loyal to kind of traditional conservatism than the neoconservatives were. It's one of the difficulties in sort of uh, using definitional terms here because what passes for the new right today is such a diverse cohort of people, right? So like, again, if you want to talk about like someone who wants a Catholic monarchy, <laughs> that's very distinct from paleoconservatism. Uh, if, you're, if you're interested in kind of like the mainstream populist nationalist school of thought, there's a lot of crossover with paleoconservatism yeah. in terms of policy prescriptions, right? We are generally immigration restrictionists. We're border hawks. We want to reduce the legal number of uh, immigrants that are coming into the country. We're skeptical of nation building, right? We're not interested in kind of Iraq war, Bush era uh, attempts to use American military to, to transport democracy to other countries. Um, and we're, we're cultural conservatives first, right? So that's not the same thing as being a statist or sort of a big government person necessarily, but it is a recognition that the economy and political economy should serve culturally conservative ends. So that means that we're, you know, often more interested in things like child tax credits to support family formation um, or, you know, a variety of different sort of programs that you can use to try to support things that conservatives care about, like the family. Um, and that, you know, that, that sort of manifests in a variety of different ways, uh, you know, in, in depending on the context that it occurs within. But there is a, I think, a, a very strong, potent paleoconservative contingent on the new right. Uh, and that also is just tied to sort of shifting political conditions. So someone like Donald Trump was very much uh, someone that I think the paleoconservatives saw as salutary. He ran in many ways on a kind of Pat Buchanan-esque program. And that's, you know, the avatar of the, the version of politics, at least in terms of a policy agenda that a lot of young new right types are interested in. Now, one of the reasons the paleos, I think, like a lot of reasons the paleos failed to, you know, kind of take over the party. But one of the reasons was their politics on issues um, like race or immigration or foreign policy were really, really just corrosive to the establishment and to you know, kind of the median American too. Whatever you want to say, I'm not attaching a value judgment, but that's the case. How do you think, I mean, certainly the new right faces similar charges that the paleos once did, you know, um, you know, people like Jason Stanley, you know, calling you guys, you know, white nationalists and such. That's obviously a smear. What's your plan to reach the kind of uh, power and respectability um, in the establishment that the paleos didn't, partly because their ideas were, you know, outside the mainstream? Yeah, well, Jason Stanley calls everyone a white nationalist. Yeah, I mean, right? so that's I, not, mean, I, uh, I think I, 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 I just had to give an example. No, I know, I know. Yeah. Um, it's he's he's a funny guy, but I think I mean those are I think two two very different questions because one was that you were talking about a politics that reaches average Americans, and the other question is appealing to the establishment. I think those are actually that gets to the core of what a lot of the new right is talking about, which is that our politics we think are probably more in touch with what the average American. Is interested in than the kind of old school Republican establishment. The average American is not really libertarian on economics. They're not in, interested in sort of slashing welfare and cutting social security. And they're not really interested in nation building abroad or often in mass immigration at home. So in many ways, we see our politics is more in touch with a lot of voters than the kind of Paul Ryan era of the Republican Party. So I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that, that actually we're going to struggle to reach voters at least vis-a-vis -vis the kind of Republican Party of the last couple of decades. In terms of appealing to the establishment, it's a much more complicated question that we can get into. 
But there have been sort of substantive shifts in the GOP elite institutions from the Heritage Foundation to the Republican Party itself, particularly because of the power of a figure like Trump and of sort of subsequent predecessors like Ron DeSantis, where you're very much seeing a shift, I think, in what could be described as the GOP establishment to adapt to some of these new insights and ideas. Uh, and I, you know, I see that as salutary. Yeah, very interesting. Do you think the new right coalition is strong enough to stand attention between the various sectors, you know, integralists, post-liberals, just the, you know, kind of generic, you know, anti-woke liberals, you know, this kind of Peter Thiel affiliated, vaguely neo-reactionary cohort? Um, or do you think there's a chance that the new right will buckle under these tensions like the intellectual dark web did? I mean, you know, if you remember a couple of years ago, you know, the intellectual dark web was kind of the thing. And now they've kind of all split apart. Um, you know, in the Biden era. Um, do you think, how, how do you think the new right coalition can best stay unified? And what are the chances of that are? Well, every political coalition has internal tensions, but to be clear, the kind of Catholic integralist types, like they don't really have a real constituency. I mean, if you ran on a, on a political program of trying to replace American democracy with a Catholic monarchy, you'd get three votes, you know, you'd get a couple votes from like the really hardcore Catholics, you know, in like these communes out in Kansas or something, and that's about it. Uh, but so, so in terms of like the actual political coalition, in terms of like the grassroots support for that stuff, you're already seeing it happen. I think the, the, it's easy to get sort of caught up in the intellectual disagreements between various intellectuals who might go by the new right moniker. But the Republican coalition, this was kind of the thing that I was trying to get at in the piece, is yeah. already reorganizing around a series of issues that are very popular with average Americans uh, and bind together a variety of different people who might disagree on first principles or philosophical worldview or religion or political philosophy or whatever, but they share a, a sh sort of shared or common set of political objectives uh, and care about a common set of political issues. And they're bound together by that. That's how sort of political coalitions work, particularly in as big and diverse and complicated a country as ours with only two parties. Uh, every single political coalition contains factions that are at odds with one another in any number of ways. But those contradictions are not necessarily uh, lethal by any stretch of the imagination as you can make common cause on a variety of issues, which is, I think, what you're seeing in the Republican Party today. Oh, yeah. And what, just for our, our listeners, what are these issues? Right. So, I mean, the, the Trump agenda of sort of immigration and trade restriction and uh, a realism on foreign policy were kind of the first organizing principles that I think a lot of Republicans of this sort of nationalist disposition took to, and those are still core organizing principles today. Uh, but they've also ex expanded outwards to a variety of cultural war issues, which again, bind together, I think, old social conservatives and kind of normal anti-woke Americans who might not even think of themselves as conservatives with the kind of national populist types. So that's cultural war issues in terms of the university, right? Cracking down on uh, really aggressive left-wing activism in the university, which we think is bad for the country, uh, and on down to the K through 12 public education system. So the fight over critical race theory is very much uh, an outgrowth of this kind of new political energy that we're talking about. And the fight over uh, transgender issues, right? Everything from uh, Leah Thomas, who's a biological male on the podium of the D1 um, swimming competition in NCAA, to transgender athletes across the country, you know, women and girls getting robbed of uh, scholarship opportunities, which has happened in a variety of different opportunities. Um, those are all issues that we're worried about and we're concerned about, not to mention the infiltration of those ideas into our schools and the bans on not just CRT, but also uh, gender ideology in the classroom is a, a big organizing principle. So those are kind of the new culture war issues 
the transgender issue, critical race theory and racialism in schools, uh, and then the universities, immigration, right? Those kind of, all of those issues which have cultural elements are kind of the glue that holds this coalition together. Do you yourself have any criticisms of the very kind of far-reaching approach conservatives have taken on these issues? Like the anti-CRT stuff, they don't say gay bill, you know, I'm just calling it, <laughs> I don't know what the other, I don't remember exactly what the number is, so I'm not trying to, again, you know, smear it exactly. Um, do you think there are any ways Republicans, conservatives could have been more diplomatic in those pushes? Uh, what what specifically the which which bill? Well, I mean, yeah, you know, there, there are obviously you know major restrictions, you know, on free on. Uh, I don't know if you'd say freedom of speech. It's obviously not a constitutional right. You know, you don't have free speech in the classroom, but there are major restrictions on expression in the classroom, and you know, relatively free discourse. You know, where you know, and don't anti CRT. You have cases where you know some teachers you know feel like uh, they can't teach about you know you know civil rights or slavery, and they have to. Uh, be very delicate around these issues. Now, obviously, I don't think those laws directly intend that, but are you, are you concerned with it, about a chilling effect or anything like that? Well, uh, the point of the, of the law to a certain extent is to have a chilling effect because yeah. we're trying to stop these poisonous doctrines from entering the classroom. But I, I think that the idea that any of these bills actually prevent people from teaching about civil rights or slavery is very silly. I think that's nonsense. And I think that if you actually look at the, the language of these bills, a lot of them mandated specific teaching about the civil rights movement and slavery. Um, what we're trying to avoid is the kind of new doctrines, which A, teach that American history is basically the sum total of a system of interlocking systems of oppression, and that young children should basically be taught to view each other by the color of their skin and be divided into different sort of racial and gendered subgroups. So those are distinct from, I think, the, the objections, which I don't think have merit, which is that this is somehow preventing people from teaching about slavery. Uh, but but no, so I, I don't I don't think that there was a sort of gentler way that conservatives should have done this. One of the the sort of basic insights of the kind of conservatism that I'm attracted to is that these are serious problems uh, and they need to be confronted aggressively. And I'm excited to see Republicans and conservatives actually sort of start to learn that. I mean, I think another question is, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, Andrew Breitbart's old argument, you know, old state old quote, you know, politics is downstream of culture. Right. And I think um, it's been kind of a weakness of conservatives that, while they may have, you know, quite a lot of political power at times, you know, they don't control the culture. Uh, the culture is in, you know, control is mostly, you know, dominated by liberals. And there are all sorts of implicit speech codes on what you can and can't say about race or gender, you know, inherent to that. So I think things like anti-CRT or, you know, they don't say gay bill or they represent a kind of conservative attempts to use state power to... Uh, influence the culture and change the standards of discourse. I mean, that's not really that's not really what they're doing, right? Because if we're talking about public education, we're talking about publicly funded schools. The point is, it's not substantively expanding state power because we're talking about state institutions. So it's not it's not wielding state power anymore. Like the the, the statement that they are using state power is not actually accurate. I don't think, right? Because they the existence of public schools has always required the setting of curricula. So this is not actually substantively new in terms of the fact that state legislatures have always been involved in setting curricula. It's just a shift in the way that we actually, that we actually are setting. Well, the shift in the way you use state power to set curricula from, you know, maybe having, you know, a curriculum that is often, you know, heavily influenced by liberal, you know, ideals um, to a more conservative approach, or even, you know, the stuff with, uh, with Disney and the, and the the tax breaks in Florida, Mm -hmm. 
people, you know, people like Richard Hanania write about this, is an attempt to use state power to mold the culture. My question is, do you think that can be successful? Do you think conservatives can actually, you know, accomplish something by trying to use state power to uh, suddenly change the way people talk about issues, you know, companies talk about issues or schools do? Or do you think we're at, you know, no match for, you know, the liberal juggernaut? Well, I think the, the liberal juggernaut is very powerful. And this is actually one of the reasons that we do need to have a more aggressive approach in these cultural issues. But absolutely. Yeah, it's public policy, of course, it affects the culture. This is, I think, Breitbart's quote um, was, was wrong about this. Obviously, laws affect culture. You can point to any number of laws that have an effect on the culture. It's always struck me as kind of odd to suggest otherwise. Of course, the way that laws are written and the effect that they have on American society has an effect on our culture. You can point to everything from immigration to the way that we do education policy, to trade policy, to wars. All of these things have a profound effect on the way that Americans interact with one another in the cultural sphere. So in many ways, I think conservatives are just responding to that basic insight. And the left, of course, has always been happy to try to use public policy to shape culture. Um, To me, it seems reasonable that the right would respond in kind. Yeah, Richard Hanania, you know, I read his pieces on, you know, how civil rights law influenced, you know, um, a lot of, you know, what we now call wokeness, you know, the idea that you have to have a certain degree of representation for each group and that diversity is some sort of primary moral objective. And that sort of opened my eyes to how the right could use policy to do the same. Um, And I think that's Hanania's point as well. Exactly. I mean, the Civil Rights Act is a perfect example of how public policy affects culture. The, the sort of growth in the civil rights bureaucracy has had a profound effect yeah. on the culture of a lot of our cultural, cultural institutions, and that in turn has had downstream effects on American life. Um, the, the sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracy is a direct outgrowth of the civil rights bureaucracy, and obviously DEI is everywhere today. It affects the way that HR departments and large corporations work. It affects the way the army works, right? The military. I mean, you cannot point to an institution today for the most part in American life, which has not been infiltrated by DEI. So that kind of stuff is the result of policy choices. Uh, and to me, one of the most effective ways to fight it is also going to be policy choices. That's fascinating. It's very interesting that the right is shifting from, you know, a more, you know, almost libertarian stance on cultural issues, you know, the, you know on, on how we should use state power to impact cultural issues, you know. That was a more neocon perspective to, you know, now a much more kind of hands-on approach. But um, I think another point I wanted to sort of ask about is in your New York Times article, you mentioned that conservatism is now the position of rebels and eccentrics who disdain the oppressive character of socially enforced progressive norms. And that's certainly true to an extent when I look at which of my friends are conservative, how I became interested in some aspects of conservative politics. Um, but then how does this kind of libertarian cultural appeal square with the aspiration of much of the new right to enforce their own social values just strictly? How deep are the commitments of, you know, a lot of young new right intellectuals to actually change society? And how much of it is just rebelling against progressive orthodoxy? And you do talk well, about this a little it, in your article. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, like and what I was trying to get out of the pieces. It depends on the segment of conservatives that you're talking about. Right. So traditional social conservatives are much more interested in, in actual social orthodoxy, just not the one that we have right now. Whereas the kind of so-called barstool conservatives who are mostly just anti-woke liberals are mostly just rebelling against the kind of dominant left-wing orthodoxy because they see it as puritanical and oppressive. But both share a distaste for the cultural orthodoxy that we have right now, which is largely operated by the left. And that's what kind of holds them together. So that's what I was trying to get at in that piece. And I think that's sort of an answer uh, to your question, which is that 
regardless of the particular strain of conservatism that you subscribe to, it is a kind of dissident view because the, the dominant view in most of our elite institutions today is very much a left-wing one. So to be a conservative is to be a kind of dissident. Uh, and that is the, that makes conservatism kind of the rebellious, uh, puts it in the sort of position of being the rebellious side. Whereas in a previous era where we had a much more conservative cultural orthodoxy, left-wingers were kind of the rebels, right? And left-wingers were pro-free speech and conservatives were more skeptical of concepts like free speech and academic freedom. So the two sides have sort of switched positions and largely that's because of power. Whereas you had a conservative cultural orthodoxy that was in power before you have a progressive cultural orthodoxy that's in power now. Um, so what happens if conservatives are actually successful in their project to sort of overthrow that orthodoxy is one of the big questions that they would have to wrestle with. But the first step of the project is to actually fight back against it. You think there are even dangers a little more immediate, like if this, you know, Supreme Court does indeed, you know, overturn Roe, um, you know, and various other kind of, you know, uh, conservative, you know, cultural goals are accomplished. Do you think maybe a lot of the barstool, you know, conservatives, you know, are going to maybe retreat from this stuff or the anti-woke liberals, you know, that'll push them to the left? And how would you respond to that? How would your coalition they might. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the big questions, right? Like, I mean, Dave Portnoy, the CEO yeah. of Barstool Sports, who's sort of a, 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 in many ways, kind of a personification of this sort of center-right, uh, but more socially liberal, but anti-woke position, uh, said that if Republicans ban abortion, he's going to vote for Democrats, right? He voted for Trump in 2016. So there are a lot of Americans who probably have similar views. The question that they will have to decide, and I think there are a lot of different factors that could sort of influence how this actually plays out is whether or not they're more alienated by the GOP's position on an issue like abortion than they are by the variety of things that they don't like about the left's cultural program. So in many ways, these people will probably be caught between the two coalitions uh, in a post-Row America. And it's, it's a viable question as to which side that they choose. It'll probably be a mix. That's my, that's my prediction. So oftentimes the way people on the new right discuss, you know, the justification for a policy like, you know, uh, you know, some sort of policy that, you know, ends up restricting, you know, uh, you know, LGBT expression in schools, let's say, or, you know, against CRT or something is an appeal to the common good. We need to do this. We need to restrict immigration or any, any set of goals to protect the common good. What is your actual empirical foundation for that idea of the common good? I mean, obviously, I, you know, I'm a political theory student. It stems from natural law theory. Um, you know, but it's a very vague idea you, you use, and there's often, you know, there's often very little evidence that it's, it represents the common good except in the eyes of conservative intellectuals and such. So how do you really build an empirical foundation for, you know, uh, when you're just saying, you know, mass immigration harms the common good, you know, children being taught CRT, you know, harms the common good in the body politic. What is your real foundation for that? You know, then that is more important than, you know, some of the, the harms you might incur, you know, in accomplishing these kinds of restrictive policies. Well, again, in all of these discussions, in these, these sort of broad social phenomena, the empirical discussions can only go so far. You can't actually reduce the way that a society works to numerical measurements as much as some political scientists would like to. There is such a thing as a culture, which is not always yeah. easy to measure through specific sort of numerical studies, you know, GDP growth numbers or yeah, college graduation rates. They can tell us something about the health of our society, but they can't tell us everything about it. Um, so in terms of these sort of, the sort of specifics of these issues, there's a, there's a distinction, I think, between the kind of 
Catholic or natural law or Aristotelian view of the common good that it sounds like you're referencing. And the broader concern is just about having a cohesive culture, which emphasizes a certain amount of social solidarity and patriotic obligation, which is something conservatives have always cared about. But the, the, uh, the concern about something like CRT in schools is that it's active, actively poisonous to a positive sense of shared American identity. It, it teaches us to hate our country. And it specifically teaches young impressionable children to hate the country that they're going to inherit. Not only that, but it teaches um, young children of color that the country they're going to inherit hates them, which I think is not true. So all of those things are, are actively poisonous to the, the kind of healthy culture that we need that actually binds us together. You could say the same thing about uh, you know large sustained periods of time where we have large immigration numbers and we don't have time to integrate the immigrants who just got here into the broader American fabric, right? We have a country and when immigrants come here, we've traditionally expected them to assimilate, but it's very difficult to carry out that, that project if you continue to bring in more immigrants year after year without a pause on immigration rates. So what we saw during Ellis Island at the beginning of the 20th century was a large uh, period of immigration and then a pause on net immigration where we basically had net zero for something like 40 years. And in that period of time, the immigrants who had come over were actually able to assimilate into American society and become fully American. It seems pretty clear that that's sort of necessitated now. We've had a similar period of long extended immigration rates. And now that the, those, those, those immigrants are here, they need time to assimilate. So it's a cultural concern. It's about cultural cohesion and about allowing people to become fully American, integrate into the country and share the kind of same basic cultural precepts that Americans who already are here have. Uh, and large sustained amounts of, of mass immigration and poisonous doctrines that hate people, teach people to hate America in schools uh, are both antithetical to that project. What do you think of your newfound prominence as an articulator of right-wing arguments to liberals? Has your intense dialogue with the left made you more moderate on some issues? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of this position, essentially? Well, I don't know how much I really am a, an articulator of right-wing um, doctrines to liberals. I mean, I, I generally say yes, go on podcasts and write for people if they ask me to. So I've gone on a you know lefty podcast from, for here or there. I went on Know Your Enemy, and you know I'm happy to write for the New York Times. I'm doing a piece for The Atlantic right now. Really? Uh, but my, my, my general interest is just writing what I think. Um, and the, the, I, I'll take whatever platform people give to me. And if those are platforms at liberal outlets, sometimes I'm happy to do it. Uh, but I, I don't know that I really see myself as someone whose central job is to explain right-wing politics to liberals. I think you could point to someone like Ross Douthat at the New York Times, who's much better at that and better situated to do that than I am. So how did you, the experience of college make you more conservative? You talk about that on the Know Your Enemy podcast about you know, how experiencing sort of wokeness in college made you move from a, you know, a center left guy to the right. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it was basically an encounter with a much more hard edged kind of leftism than the kind I grew up with. I mean, both my parents are sort of Democrats, but they were Democrats in an era where that meant Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter. Uh, I encountered a much more poisonous and aggressive kind of leftism on my campus, which was much more intolerant of dissent much less interested in engaging with other ideas uh, and, you know, much more destructive ultimately. I mean, a lot of the kids on campus that my campus is, which is I think true of a lot of elite campuses um, called themselves radicals and were interested in kind of uh, a kind of cultural revolution. That's not the sort of moderate progressivism that I grew up with. Um, and it's, it's one that was incredibly alienating. So that and the general sort of intolerance to actually discussing new ideas 
and the desire to destroy people who voice unpopular ideas, which you see on campuses across the country, uh, to me indicated a, a real rot in the, the contemporary left that needs to be resisted. And it became increasingly untenable for me to see myself as part of that project. And how do you blame to build a conservatism that um, accomplishes its, its uh, you know, policy and cultural goals, but also allows a kind of dissent that the left, you know, in your, in your mind doesn't. And that obviously, you know, that lack of dissent alienated you from the left. Um, how do you aim to build a conservatism that is more tolerant of dissent while also, you know, has some moral clarity? Well, I think exactly what we're doing right now. I mean, I, I wouldn't frame the project in terms of a conservatism that is more tolerant of dissent than conservatism has been in the past. More tolerant of mm-hmm. dissent than leftists, than leftists are. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, th- I think, I think conservatism is, is more yeah. tolerant of dissent than leftists are. It's one of the reasons I became a conservative. How did reading Michael Oakeshaw influence your political development? How do you think his calls for skepticism, ideologically driven narratives squares with the climate of moral certitude on both the left and the right today? What would, o- what do you think Oakeshaw would have to say about present day politics if he were alive today? Well, Oakeshott never really liked politics. So Michael Oakeshott is a, he's a British political philosopher who sort of thought of as a conservative, but was kind of a heterodox guy. He always saw politics as kind of a secondary pursuit whatsoever. So Oakeshott would probably disdain the fact that I went into politics at all. Uh, he was really a, a political philosopher's political philosopher. He saw politics as a necessary evil, but wanted to basically minimize its reach into the rest of life as much as possible. He wanted to give people spheres where they didn't have to do politics all the time. So I guess the aspect of the, the kind of political project that I'm interested in, which does cross over with what Oakshot was interested in, is that I want to depoliticize large swaths of American life. One of the problems with the hegemony of the cultural left is that it has basically institutionalized the idea that the personal is political, right? Everything is political. We're familiar with this phrase if we spent any time on college campuses. I think that's really poisonous because politics is a divisive, messy business and a free society should seek to uh, provide spheres of life where people don't have to constantly uh, be engaging with one another as political actors. So in many ways, what I'm interested in doing is sort of fighting the politicization of everything from our public schools to our universities. Uh, not to mention the the sort of broader takeover of, of our institutions, right? I don't think that politics should be involved in sports if we can avoid it. I don't think politics should be in the classroom, at least in K through 12, if we can avoid it. Um, so those those things, I think, are probably something that Oakshot would be comfortable with. He'd probably be really, really dismayed at the politicization of these aspects of our life and would want to, you know, look to something that would actually be capable of pushing back against that. But with that being said, Oakshot never really had a coherent political program. Again, he was a philosopher first and foremost and was sort of skeptical of programmatic policy uh, agendas. So insofar as I am interested in a, in a substantive policy agenda, I'm not uh, strictly speaking an Oakshotian. What do you say to a sort of, you know, say Schmidian or a Gambin type thinker who argues that it really is almost impossible to depoliticize significant spheres of human life, you know, once politics has laid a claim on it? I don't know. It's a good question. The, I mean, I think there are ways to sort of remove politics from a sphere of life. And I think it, if you've actually seen what's happened in a variety of different institutions in recent months, you've seen some uh, stepping away from political activism amongst a, a bunch of different institutions. So everything from um, Disney pausing its political contributions in reaction to political action to Netflix firing hundreds of activist employees in response to a boycott 
to State Farm pulling out of this transgender books for children program after a, a backlash from consumers, it's clear that the exercise of political power actually can depoliticize these institutions, which have leaned increasingly into activism in recent years. Uh, but you, you certainly have to be prudential about it. There's a danger that you can just politicize them more. I don't think that's inevitable, though. Interesting. And then what are some, besides Oakshot, who are some political theorists and thinkers who have influenced you? So actually, Irving Kristol, who's a first wave neoconservative, yeah, is um, someone, someone who uh, is of enormous interest to me. It's interesting because I think, you know, I'm very critical of neoconservatism today as it manifests, but early neoconservatism had a lot to like in it. Um, so I think Irving Kristol uh, is someone who's particularly interesting. Russell Kirk, obviously, is the godfather of American traditionalism. Um, he's someone who is also of interest. So there are a variety of sort of political philosophers who are squarely within the American conservative tradition that I'm interested in, and I think have a lot of wisdom. Um, but you, I think they, their insights, although they were responding to different political conditions in their day, uh, are very helpful in understanding our, our current political moment is important. That was Nate Hawkman on MIR Meets.